0: All right. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 for this morning. I I heard about a kindergarten teacher who wanted to make a point to her class that no one is dumb. No one is dumb. And so she told her class, if any of you students believe that you are dumb, I want you to stand up. And and she knew that nobody would stand up. She would make her point that nobody's dumb. And as she asked that question, nobody stood up for a while until toward the end of the question, a little boy by the name of Joe stood up right here on the front row. And she thought, oh no, we had a little boy stand up. And, and she said, Joe, why, do you, why are you standing up? Why do you think that you're dumb? And he said, ma'am, I don't. I just hated for you to be standing there all by yourself. We've all had those moments, haven't we? where we thought, I don't want to ask that question because it's a dumb question. I don't want to appear dumb, but what we're doing today is simply questions and answers. The last four weeks, I have challenged you to turn in any question you may have, and we're going to answer those today in this message. This is I like this, and here's why. It's something different, yes, but this is how I learn the best, is asking questions and getting answers. There isn't a week that goes by that I don't pick up my phone and call somebody. "Hey, what do you think about this passage? What do you think about this verse? What do you think about this in our scriptures? I use it a lot, almost every week. Also, if you're growing in the faith, you're going to have questions. If you're reading your Bible and you're in prayer and you're contemplating spiritual things, you're going to naturally have some questions throughout that path. By the way, this is a biblical idea. In the first century in your New Testament, yes, there were sermons, there were one-way conversations, but the Apostle Paul also used question and answers. He used dialogue, a two-way conversation. In Acts chapter 17, verse 17, it says, and it's talking about Paul, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. He reasoned. In the message paraphrase, it says he discussed it with the Jews another other like-minded people at their meeting place. Reason or discuss, that word in the original language actually means dialogue. He was in a dialogue with people. Paul would show up in a town, and he would answer questions. So we had five questions that I want to answer this morning. We had more than that, some of them. Uh, I didn't put them in the message. I answered them privately through email, uh, so if yours wasn't... Answered today, it got to you through an email, but here's five that we're going to answer in our public message. The first one is this, what does the Bible say about purgatory? What does the Bible say about purgatory? Now, if you're not familiar with purgatory, it's a teaching that after you die, your sins have not been fully paid for, and so you need some time in purgatory, this waiting place to totally be purified, to have all of your sins purified before before you go to heaven. It's kind of an in-between place. Is this biblical? No. It's not. Purgatory is never mentioned in Scripture in any way. The passage that is used by those who believe in purgatory is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Here's what it says in verses 12 through 15. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Number one, purgatory is not mentioned there. Number two, that passage is in context of the judgment that is to come. When we leave this earth, we're going to stand before the Father in heaven. There is going to be a judgment. Everyone will be judged. If you are not in Christ, you will be judged for your sins. If you are in Christ, you will not answer for your sins. You will not answer for one of them. You will answer for your works. And that's what that passage is talking about. There is a passage in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 that says, There is therefore now no condemnation, no penalty, no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. The non Christian has to answer for their sins. The Christian has all their sins washed away as far as the east is from the west. It's been buried in, in, into the deepest part of the ocean. Uh, our sins are forgotten by God. We will not answer for our sins. We're not, when we stand before God, He's going to see Jesus. We are clothed in Christ. There is going to be no sin on our record. Our record is wiped clean through the blood of Christ. All our sins, from your first sin till your last sin. And so, therefore, there is no need for a waiting place where you need to get extra purified because we are totally purified in Jesus Christ. Now, here's just a (sighs) purgatory is a damaging teaching, and, and here's why. To say there is a place where we need to go after death to totally satisfy the penalty of our sin is to say that Jesus didn't totally satisfy the penalty for our sin. It is to say that his death on the cross did not do what he said it did. It is to say that the cross is not sufficient. It did not totally purify us. Jesus' final words, or or one of his final words on the cross, was, It is finished. Do you know what it is finished means? In the original language, it means paid in full. When you pay off your mortgage or you pay off a debt, you pay off a bill. In the old days, there was a stamp that went on your bill that said, paid in full. That's a good feeling. If you have ever paid off a mortgage? I have not. If you've ever paid off a mortgage and it says, paid in full, that would be a good feeling. All of our sins, through the blood of Jesus Christ, he stamped it. He said, it is finished, paid in full. You put your faith and trust in me. No sins left on your record. That's good news, church. We don't need an extra place where we get extra purified. You are totally purified. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Second question. Good question. Why does Jesus say, if you want to follow me, you must hate your family, including wife and children? Is that in there? It is. If you're new to the faith today, you go, whoa, wait a minute here. (laughs) Time out. Jesus said that? I was good with last week, that kindness sermon, that sandman sermon. That, That was good. I think you might lose me here, Nathan. If Jesus said this, you must hate your family, including wife and children. Well, the passage, Luke 14, verse 26. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them. He said, if anyone comes to me... And does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and si- the brothers and sisters part's easy. We, we can handle that, right? Yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. What's he saying? Did Jesus preach love everybody over here and then contradict himself over here and say hate your family? Is this hate speech? We are so sensitive in our culture right now to hate speech that we get frustrated at even the word hate. But what Jesus is actually teaching right here is a comparative command. It is not a literal command. He was not teaching to hate your father, mother, brother, or sister. He was comparing your love for Jesus compared to everybody else. What he was saying was this. Your love for Jesus should be so far up here that whoever is second on your list, mother, father, brother, sister, spouse, wife, husband, son, daughter, should be so far down. He is on the throne, they are not, that it would comparatively be hate. But you don't hate them. As a matter of fact, to love your family the best, you need to love Jesus the most. This is about putting Jesus on the throne in your life, and everybody else and everything else comes second to that. I, I was teaching, this question was asked in a Sunday school class five, six, seven years ago, and, and I just explained to them what I just explained to you, and a young man, probably 30, 35 years old at the time, he got, he got mad, And every time this passage comes up, I I think of this. He said, are you telling me I'm supposed to love Jesus more than my wife? And his wife was sitting right there next to him. Are you telling me Jesus is saying love him more than her? I said, that is what that passage is saying. She is not to be on the throne in your life. He is to be on the throne in your life. And he... His face got red, and he said, and and he said it with romanticism and bravado, and I think he thought his wife was going to be impressed by this, and we were all going to say, "Oh, isn't that so sweet?" But he said, "I will never love anyone, including Jesus, more than her." And the class got quiet. There was silence. She put her head down, because what Jesus is saying is, if you're going to love her the best, you need to love him the most. Your love for Christ will actually radiate in your love for all of your other relationships. Don't ever put your spouse on the throne. They will disappoint you, and it will hurt your life, and it will hurt your spouse, and it will hurt you. But when you put Jesus on the throne, you are able to love and forgive and show compassion and sacrifice to everybody else around you. The the dramatic part of this verse is actually at the end for me. Verse 26, it says, such a person cannot be my disciple. Everybody say cannot. Say cannot with me. Cannot. Cannot. He said it. If you can't put him on the throne, you cannot, cannot be my disciple. He's saying there's a kind of person who cannot be his disciple, the person who doesn't put him first. This is radical devotion. I admit it's tempting to stand up here and try to lessen the standard for discipleship. Jesus never did. He called for full devotion, radical commitment. He never wavered on his commitment to him. So that's why I don't feel bad about asking people to serve or volunteer in the church. I don't feel bad about asking to do that. And if you're here for very long, you will be asked. I don't feel bad about asking people to put money in the offering plate. If he's on the throne in, in your life, that's, that's, not a, that's not a radical move. I don't feel bad about preaching obedience to baptism. Christ preached it. He, he exampled it. People have tried to make me feel bad about preaching it. I will not feel bad about it because Christ called for it. I do not feel bad about asking people to be in church every week, possibly, if they're able to be in church. I don't feel bad about preaching that because he called for, he called for this. My requests are not even close to Jesus' requests. He's calling for radical devotion. If we are really here today to follow Jesus Christ, those type of things will not be hard if you want the real thing. John chapter 10 verse 10 says, he has come to give life. That's the real thing. My wife and I this last week invested in a coffee grinder. Anybody here have a coffee grinder? Anybody? You're a part of the coffee grinder family? And a French press. Anybody here have a French press? Thank you. You you know what I'm talking about. We'd never had a coffee grinder, never had a French press, never had anything like that. We found some deals. I did some research, and, and we got them. Here, here was the problem. For years, we've been doing the drip machine and, and Keurigs and other things, and the coffee was ground years ago or months ago, and it's stale and bitter, and you put it in the dripping machine and, and the filter and all that stuff, and it was fine. We didn't know any different. We wake up every morning. We're doing, we thought that was the norm, and maybe it is the norm. We thought that was coffee, and we were fine. We were happy. We were grumpy all day, but we were fine. We were okay. Until one day, I was at somebody's house, and they had the grinder, and they had the French press, and they gave me a cup of coffee, and I thought, oh, my. This is what I've been missing? This is what coffee actually tastes like? This is the actual flavor? i have been doing the bitter, the stale, the fake, and now I couldn't go back. Once I've had the real, I couldn't go back to the fake. Once I had the rich, I couldn't go back to the stale. And, and, and here's the thing. There are a lot of Christians out there who's still doing the stale and the bitter and the fake because they've never had the real thing. They've never committed all. They've never surrendered all. They've never given all. They've never devoted at all. They've always, I'll complain about this. You're going to ask me to serve. You're going to ask me to give. I'll just fight against that. And, and they've never had the real Jesus and the real blessings and the real promises Jesus is calling for the real thing here. And the only way you can experience the real Jesus and the real faith and the real promises and the real blessing is when you give your all to him. Unfortunately, what I see in ministry the most, and I witness it over and over again within a family, is you have one spouse who's committed and one who's not. And usually when that happens, Usually, the spouse who is not committed wins in the family. And rather than say, I'm going to give my all to Jesus, I want to appease my spouse and make peace in my home, and I'll just, I, I won't just—I will go to church, I won't be involved, I won't give, I, I'm, I'm going to play to the tune of less Jesus is better. And I, I hate it that people are put in that position, But what Jesus is saying is you were to love him more than your spouse. That's what he's saying. And so if you're ever put in that position, and I'm thankful today that I married a woman that does not put me in that position, and I hope I don't put her into that position. But if you're ever put in that position where you have to choose between the real thing or following your spouse, what Jesus is saying is you follow Jesus. I will not give up my relationship with Jesus for anybody. And you say, man, that's radical. That is deep. That is scandalous. But here's the deal, there's gonna be a day that you stand with Jesus and he's gonna show you his hands and he's gonna show you where the nails went in and he's gonna show you where, this, where the spear went in right here and you will not think it's radical then. And you will say, you were worthy of my worship. You were worthy of my all and I'm glad I gave it all. So this is called, whenever I was studying Luke 14, verse 26, people said this is a scandalous text, but here's what I want to say about this. It is scandalous, but it's not scandalous for why you think it's scandalous. What's scandalous is that we think it's scandalous. That's what's scandalous, that we would ever dare to say less of Jesus is better. That's the scandal. That's the scandal. Number three, what does the Bible say? I've never been asked this. About higher education? I've never been asked that question. I enjoyed the study on it. It was fun and insightful. What does the Bible say about higher education? You know, I was a teacher for six years. I was a high school teacher for six years, so you didn't know that. It it reminds me of when I was teaching. I I had a student who was also a football player. And so out on the football field during warm ups, we were stretching, everybody was in their line to stretch. I would go through the line. And part of football is keeping not only physically ready, but mentally ready. If you ever played football, you need to be thinking while you're acting. And so I would go through the line while they're stretching and ask them trivia questions. And I I was going by, and I went by one of my students, and I said, uh, I'm not going to say his name, but I would say, what's the capital of Georgia? And I thought, he's in high school. You have to know all your capitals, right, to pass eighth grade. At least you used to. (laughs) Capital of Georgia, that's easy. I mean, you, you all know the capital of Georgia, right? Anyway, um, I said, what's the capital of Georgia? And he sat there, and he was quiet, and he looked down, and he was thinking hard. He had that thinking. He put his thinking cap on. And after about 15, 20 seconds, he just put his head down. And I said, he said, Coach Bolt, I never was very good at geometry. <laughs> geometry. Anyway... <laughs> Geography, just so you know. But he said geometry. Ecclesiastics 12, verse 12, says, Be careful, for writing books is endless, and much study wears you out. And all of you who remember college, you remember that. That is, much study wears you out. <laughs> Education is valuable, but it has a limited value. The greater truth comes in the next verse, where he says in verse 13, Here now is what is better Here's my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. So, actually, education is valued. It has a limited value. What's better is following the Lord. But I I will say this. If any faith has ever endorsed education, it's been Christianity. Did you know most of the colleges in the United States of America are here today because they were founded by Christians who were actually fi- uh, founding preacher training institutions. Yale started as a preacher training institution. Harvard started as a preacher training institution. Texas A&M, you may not think this, it started as a preacher training institution. Most colleges started were started by the church in the United States of America. If any faith has endorsed education, it has been the faith of Jesus Christ. And where Christianity expands, statistically, education typically expands as well. Did you know that Jesus was a learner? Jesus was a learner himself. In Luke chapter 2, verse 52, it says, Jesus grew, uh, this is talking about his, his childhood, before he entered 30 years old the ministry, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. Jesus constantly put himself in a position to learn. He never put down people who learned. And when he was 12 years old, he's in the temple. He's talking with, the, God, he's talking with uh, the religious leaders, and he's answering their questions. He didn't say you shouldn't have questions. He didn't say you shouldn't answer. He was answering their questions. He endorsed education. I will say the best education begins with the parent and the child. That's the best education. For the parents to be involved in the training of their children. Ephesians 6, verse 4, fathers, and he puts this on the Dad. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So here's here's the deal. God created everybody differently. He, He created everybody uniquely. For some, he probably intended them to go to college, and they're built for college, and they need to go to college. But there are some who probably need to specialize in a trade or a a skill that does not involve a degree or, or a different higher education. He created everybody differently. He didn't create us as robots. Not everybody needs to go. Some should go. But pray about it. Pray for your children. Pray for your grandchildren. God has a plan for you. Do what he wants you to do. Fourth question, What happens to those who died before Jesus came? What happens to those on the salvation scale? I'm going to do this one very shortly. So you have the, let's say this pulpit is the cross. What about those people who lived before the cross, before Jesus came? So here's how they were saved before the cross. They were saved by putting their faith in a coming Messiah, A Messiah that was to come. He hadn't come yet, but they were saved. Not not even, thank you, Bill, not by their works, actually. This is very misunderstood. They were saved because they put their faith in a coming Messiah. They didn't know his name was going to be Jesus yet, but the coming Christ, the coming anointed one, the coming Messiah. That's how they were saved. Those of us who live after the cross over here, we are saved because we put our faith in the Messiah that did come the anointed one, Jesus of Nazareth. We believe he is the son of God. We put our faith in him who did come and will come again. Actually, you're saved by the same way, putting your faith in Christ, putting your faith in the Messiah. They are saved if they put their faith in him. Final question, if a person has never heard of Jesus, then they could never reject him. Would they go to heaven? Person who's never heard of Jesus. They live somewhere out in the desert. They've never heard. They don't have a Bible. Nathan, you say there's one way to heaven. That's through Jesus. What about that person who's never heard of Jesus? Here's the deal. I'm sad that there are people who's never heard of Jesus. There are people on the planet who's never heard of him. I'm also glad that I'm not God. Are you glad that you're not God? (laughs) I'm glad I'm not him. I'm glad I'm not the one who decides who gets in and who doesn't. We have some weird theologies about who gets in. I I've heard about a woman who died prematurely. She was in her middle-aged years. She went to heaven. She's standing at the pearly gates. She she looked past the pearly gates. She saw some of her family members eating at a big banquet table, having a good time. The family, hey, good to see you. We've been waiting for you. And then here comes Peter. And she said, Peter, how do I get in? He said, you just have to spell one word. She said, what's the word? He said, love. She said, L-O-V-E. He said, you're in. After a couple of months, she was having a great time in heaven when all of a sudden Peter had a an errand. He said, ma'am, would you watch the pearly gates for me for just a few minutes? She went over to the pearly gates and lo and behold, she sees her former husband walking up. So I am surprised to see you so soon. How's life been going? And he said, actually, I've been doing pretty well since you died. I married that beautiful young nurse that took care of you in the hospital. In your, do you remember her? I married that beautiful lady. And then I won the lottery. I sold the little house you and I lived in, bought a big mansion with her. My wife and I traveled around the world. We were on vacation, I, and, and I was going water skiing today. And I fell, the ski hit my head, and here I am. And she was looking at him with a red face, mad. He said, how do I get in? And she said, you just have to spell one word. He said, what's the word? She said, Czechoslovakia. <laughs> I don't think she wanted him in. We have a lot of bad theology about how you get into heaven. Is ignorance of Jesus a way to get into heaven? Romans chapter 1, verse 20 is probably our key verse. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. God created us in his image. Even if you've never heard a sermon on Jesus, you've never heard of him. If you're living in the middle of the desert, you can still look out, and just by the beauty and the wonder and the majesticness of the world, you still know there is a God who created this, and if you seek a relationship with him, you will find him. There's passages that say if you seek him, you will find him. Now here, I'm gonna go on an opinion for just a second, so I'm telling you, I'm not... Using a verse on this, here's my opinion. What that means to me is if there's a man or woman in the middle of India or Africa or Russia or somewhere who's never heard of Jesus, and they look around and they say, I know there's a God, there has to be a God, I want to... I want a relationship with you. I don't know how. I don't know where you are. I'm seeking you. What God will do in that moment, in my opinion, by how I read the scriptures is, he will lay it on somebody's heart somewhere else in the world. He will send them to him or her who was seeking God. They will hear about Jesus when it's all said and done because they sought the one true God. There are stories of that all the time. Where a missionary family... All of a sudden, they're living in Texas. They're living in Louisiana, and they get it laid on their heart. I need to go to this little tribal area in Africa or somewhere. And people say, why are you Why are you going there? Why are you going there to start a church? And they say, I really can't answer that question. Guys, just put it on our heart. But what was happening the whole time was there was somebody in that tribal village who was seeking God. God put it on this family's heart. They can't explain it. They don't know why. They train. They prepare. They pray about it. They, they get their funding. They go over to Africa, and they share the gospel of Jesus. Jesus. And lo and behold, in that time, they find out there was one person, one girl, one boy, one man, one woman who was seeking God. That story happens all the time. And God sent a preacher. Whenever you seek him, you will find him. I think there's an example of that in Acts chapter 8, by the way. The Ethiopian eunuch's going along in a chariot, and he's reading Isaiah. He'd never heard of Jesus, but he's reading Isaiah. He doesn't know what it is. He's seeking an answer to Isaiah. And all of a sudden, God sends Philip, the evangelist. And Philip says, what are you reading? He says, I don't know what I'm reading unless somebody explains it to me. And Philip explains the gospel, introduces Jesus to the Ethiopian eunuch. And by the end of the conversation, he says, look, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Philip introduced him to Jesus because he's riding along seeking God. God sent somebody. This is why the Lord put such an emphasis on sharing the gospel to everybody. Mark 16, verse 15. And he told them, go into all the world. This is our command. Go into all the world and preach the good news to who? Try that again. Go into all the world and preach the good news to who? That's our command. That's why we're here, church why we're here. It's the mission of my life, and it's the mission of your life. It's the mission I caught in a little church service when I was 16 years old. Share the gospel. Share the gospel. It's the burden of Jesus. If you can be saved by ignorance, Jesus wouldn't have said Mark 16:15. He would have said, don't go share it. We'll get more people saved by not knowing than by knowing. But he says, Go into all the world. There's a burden, there's an urgency, there's a heart there. They don't have him and they need him. Can't you sense that? Lives are at stake, eternity is hanging in the balance. I can't verbalize this well enough. This church is here today for you. This church is here today. For somebody else out there who doesn't know the Lord, all these chairs were set up, these lights were turned on, that music team put together, that sound booth, that children's area for those kids to hear about Jesus. Those signs out on the road, I've seen you guys. I've heard of Venture. I've seen your signs. There isn't anything more important that you will ever do than put your hands and invest in a gospel mission. Eternity is hanging in the balance. Souls are at stake. Here's what I know about those who haven't heard of Jesus. Here's what I know. God will do the right thing. He always does the right thing. He is just. He is holy. He is loving. He will do the right thing. The bigger question is, for those of us who do know about Jesus, what have you done with him? See, we do know. We definitely have no excuse. For those of us who have been enlightened, Hebrews says it is worse for us. What's worse as bad as it is to not hear about Jesus. Hebrews says it's worse if you have heard about Jesus and still rejected him and still didn't give your all to him. 1 John 5:12 Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Acts 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. We either believe that or we don't. And if we do, it's a call to action. It's a call to give. It's a call to sacrifice. It's a call to get involved. It's a call to commit. It's a call to engage. It's a call to invest. It's a call to surrender for each and every follower of Jesus to let the watching world know there is a God, and he loves you, and he sees you, and he wants you, and he wants to pull you into a relationship. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Amen?